0: Let us pray. Holy God, we pray to you right now and we ask that you would warm our hearts. You would speak to us and give us meaning and direction and clarify these words for us. Make them mean something special to us and give us hope and fill us with your love through the words that were just read. Anoint my lips and anoint our ears. We are here listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. Today is a special day for two reasons. One, today we celebrate the transfiguration of Jesus, the gospel text that I just read. And unfortunately, I believe the transfiguration is undervalued. It is one of the five really important marks in the narrative of Jesus' life. The others being his baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. This is a moment where, for a moment, the radiance of God's divine self is revealed. This is one of the greatest miracles, if not the greatest miracle, prior to the resurrection in the New Testament because this miracle happens to Jesus. And it is the Lord being revealed, magnified like no other time. In addition to Transfiguration, today is also Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. We might see all the cards and the balloons and the flowers in the stores or even online. Valentine's Day is really traces back to February 14 in the year 269 when a man named St. Valentine was beheaded and buried. St. Valentine was a man who was first imprisoned, persecuted because of his faith in Christ. And he helped persecuted Christians escape and actually marry. He was also known for one who prayed for a jailer's daughter, Who was blind and she was healed. And before his execution, as he was led out of his jail cell, he wrote a note With God be with you, love Valentine. For us, it's a lovely, warm, and romantic day. For others, It's a difficult one. Some of us today, we think of our partners that have passed away. Our best friend, our love. We think about them all the time. But on a day like this, it can be intensified. And so I think of you today. I think of you today, and the Lord thinks of you today. And it's not only those people that we were wedded to or had a relationship with intimately, but also other loved ones, parents, siblings, and even children. S- for some, recent. For others, not so recent. But in both cases, we long, we long them, their voice, their touch, their presence. My father passed away two and a half years ago. And I think of him often, all the time. And I wish that I could see him, to hear his voice, to feel his touch. And I know many of you can relate. You know, I've been in ministry for 15 years now and I've heard people's stories and their grief and their mourning. But I can't remember a time when I've heard so much, so much of people who have lost loved ones at one time, like today, these days. You know, there's so many, it seems like, are passing regularly. And as a priest, somebody part of the ministry, we often regularly get these prayer requests. Many have passed away these past couple of months. Some by COVID, others by illness, and others tragically by an accident. This week, we heard of an intercessor in our diocese who tragically lost her grandson in a fatal car accident. He leaves behind a wife and two children. This is heavy, heavy on our hearts. You know, death hurts, it stings. Because it's so real and raw. It leaves a numbing feeling. We're not expecting it, or even if we are, we were created in God's image and in His likeness. And there's a natural rejection of the seizing of life. But with that said, we are also reminded of something that is equally as raw, as true, and that is God's love and his resurrection. And it is in his resurrection that we place our hopes that though this life may come to pass, we will not cease to exist, that we will become people glorified with new bodies in His presence. And that one day we will see our loved ones again. It is as if we were in a room, a house. I want you to picture this earth, this life, as a house. And each one of us has a room. But that house has a front door and one day we will open that door, that door being Christ, and we go outside. And when we go outside, that exodus, when we leave the home with all its furnishing, we go outside and outside is the presence of God and heaven, where the landscape is nothing short of spectacular, full of majesty, wonder, full of colors and joy. We have a God who has conquered death, and our hope is in him, And that's the hope and the faith we live by, that we will be reunited with our loved ones. Be not, be mistaken. God has the final word in Christ. Death no longer has victory or a sting. It is temporal, but we go outside. We will leave this home, this body, and be joint with God and our loved ones and be given a new body, a resurrected body one day. Now I believe this sets the table for today's reading. I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit has thus far spoken to you and continues to speak to you going forward a few preliminary w- words before we actually actually exegete this text. this gospel event is also recorded in Matthew 17 Luke 9, as well as it, it is in today's Mark chapter 9 reading. And it's also important to note that this event takes place precisely chronologically with Peter's confession just one chapter before. And that takes place in all three Gospels. You see, in chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus... Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And Peter confessed that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the high point in the gospel of Mark. That is the apex, the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. And everything from that point on begins to Come down, if you will. Jerusalem is now in sight for Jesus. That is his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And immediately after the declaration, Jesus gives his first passion prediction and says that the Son of Man will suffer He will be killed, but be raised on the third day. Peter, being the emotional one, can't accept such a reality. Not on his watch. He rebukes Jesus only then to find himself being rebuked by Jesus himself. As Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts are not the thoughts of God, but of man you think temporally. You don't see the vision and mission of God in and through me. For I have come for a greater purpose and my title as Messiah is not one who is here to usurp the oppressors, the Romans or any other oppressing regime. No, I have come to trample over death itself. Sin is my enemy, the great oppressor. And then Jesus says, Some of you that are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in its power. Matthew says, the son of man coming in his kingdom. The question is, what does that mean? Why would Jesus say that right before the transfiguration? And I believe it's quite clear. Because here in the transfiguration, we do see the glory of God, the kingdom of God coming in its power. That reference of coming in its power is not a reference to his second coming. No, it is the imminent power that will be manifested before them those people right then and there in that point in history that Jesus would be glorified, a foreshadowing of what is to take place not long from there. It was Saint Origen, the early church father, who first connected the transfiguration with the resurrection. And so what we will get in the transfiguration is a glimpse, a snapshot of the future the future that is imminent in Jesus' life, the death and resurrection, but also the future that awaits all of us in Christ when we one day will be raised to life. Here you see Jesus being glorified with light, and we will speak to that now. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led led them up a mountain by themselves. In Luke, it says they go up there to pray. And so here's Peter, James, and John, who he regularly takes with him for some very important moments in his ministry. And he's there at a mountain the mountain isn't disclose what mountain but most scholars believe this is mount tabor and the mountain was a place common in the old testament where god would reveal himself meet his people this goes back even to the early pages of scripture in genesis in the beginning when god created the heavens and the earth when we read in Genesis chapter 2, four rivers coming down and flowing, that comes from a mountain, those rivers. Then we have the mountain of Arat, where Noah's ark rested and the covenant was renewed. Further along the story of Scripture, then we have. Mount Moriah, where Abraham makes a covenant there with God, vice versa. This is in Genesis chapter 24. Later we have Mount Sinai with Moses receiving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments of God. Further along in the story, we then have Mount Zion with David, where God established an unconditional covenant and tells David that his kingdom will last forever. And then again, at Mount Sinai, Horeb, you have Elijah meeting with God on that holy mountain where a covenant is renewed. So the mountain is a place where God often reveals himself, establishes a covenant, or renews a covenant with his people. And here is these Jewish men, Peter, James, and John. They know God who has appeared in these mountains, but they also know God as one who has revealed himself as light regularly. For it says in Mark, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Let us go back to the Old Testament. God, he appeared and revealed himself in visible form, always in some form of light, a light in a cloud, like an iridescent cloud. Fire, the Shekia, the Shekinah glory. The appearance of God, where light was the phenomenon he revealed himself in. At the invitation of the priestly service in Leviticus 9, God appears in light. In Exodus 16, verses seven to 10, God appears to Israel as light. In Exodus 24, God appears to Moses as light in exodus chapter 24 verses 34 and 35 the tabernacle is completed and a god appears in the shekinah glory as light at kadash barnea you remember in numbers chapter 14 where the children of israel rebelled against god and god appears as light A couple of chapters later, in the 16th chapter of Numbers, at the exposure of the sins of Korah, Nathan, and Abraham, God appears in light. Numbers 16, the same chapter, at the rebellion of Israel against Moses and Aaron, God appears in light. In Numbers chapter 20, God appears as light at Morhibah, where Israel was thirsty. And then when the temple was completed it is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 11 that the glory of God descended on the place as light. And finally God was there in his blazing glory in 2 Chronicles 7:1 when the first offering was made in the temple. Every one of those appearances God as sea, is seen as light. God reducing his nature to a visible light phenomenon. Habakkuk, the prophet, sees a future day of full glory when, quote, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory as the waters covers the sea. There will be a day in the future when somehow God's glory in Christ will cover the entire planet. Until then, all the revelations of God's glory are somewhat partial and limited, but nevertheless, this partial and limited revelation of God does not take away from him any divine or stunning revelation. You remember God said to Moses, No man can see me and live, I will show you my back because the full glory would have consumed him. But in every case, it is to strengthen their faith. That's why God reveals himself as light. I want to establish this case because there's precedent of God revealing himself as light throughout the Old Testament. There is a saying, there is nothing new about the New Testament, and there's nothing old about the Old Testament. It is one continuous story, often overlapping with various themes and motifs and revelations. And light is one that is paramount, that is consistent in both the Old and the New. And as God reveals himself on mountains and also as light, we see that same revelation revealed in Christ now on a mountain as light, which then naturally tells us if you're a skeptic or even if you're a believer, that something is being said in that act of his transfiguration Namely, that here stands God, the epiphany, where God reveals himself. Here stands God himself, but in the greatest and most magnificent revelation, in Christ, his Son. So when we see Jesus being transformed, transfigured, the Greek word here is metamorphosis, essentially, here we are seeing the pristine image of God. A beautiful sight to see. You see, up until this point, Jesus' divinity has been veiled. The only way you know that he is divine is by the things he does by the miraculous signs and wonders, be it water to wine, walking on water, healing the sick, and people, some people, connect that as him being the son of the living God, hence Peter in Mark chapter 8. Who do the people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? You see, for Peter, it's all the things that Jesus had done that had revealed to him and possibly others, that Jesus was divine. But now, for the first time, Jesus does something to reveal he is divine. He shows them who he is. He unveils that humanist no longer is veiling his divinity. And now they are there witnessing the beautiful moment the greatest moment prior to the resurrection, the glory of God. We see God and live. We can see God now and live. We don't have to see his back. Emil Bruner, a theologian in the 20th century said, the revelation of God is not a book or a doctrine. It is a person. Which there's truth to that statement. Never has God revealed himself so magnificently and so precisely as in this passage that I just read to you when the glory of God is shined through Christ. John himself says, what I write to you concerning the word of life, we have seen, we have touched, our hands have handled. He's been manifest. And Peter just read, we don't preach to you any sort of fable. We are eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw his majesty when we were with him on that holy mountain. That's what our dear sister Brenda read today in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. The eyewitnesses have seen the majesty of Christ. And then also in the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the begotten son of God. So all this sets up the transfiguration. And then it says... And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, well, forgive me. It says, then they appeared to them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Here, the appearance of Elijah and Moses, two who represent both the law and the prophets, it's not surprising that they were there because they symbolize both, that now there's a completion of all the prophets and the law. In Jesus, as they both pointed to the coming Messiah, they too also were on mountains where they spoke with God, and they too are the only other people in the entire both Old and New Testaments that fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. We know Elijah did that on the mountain, and most likely Moses did that when he went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. But here is one who is different than them, who goes beyond them. But here's the question I have. As they were standing there and talking to Jesus, what were they talking about is the million-dollar question, if you will. What were they talking about with Jesus? Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke does. I believe you have the text in front of you. In Luke, it says, Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, there you go. What were they speaking about? What were they talking about? Apparently, according to Luke, they were talking about his departure. And the word departure there in Greek is exodus. They were talking about his exodus meaning his death and his resurrection and his ascension you see what you have in the transfiguration of jesus is a new exodus all of the prophets in the old were pointing to a day then when when a new age of salvation would come when god would finally come back to his people and deliver them that and they described that as a new exodus And now you're seeing that departure language being discussed between Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. The transfiguration, my dear brothers and sisters, is the new Exodus. It is a sign, it is a glimpse, it is a foreshadowing of what is to come. The new Exodus. The new Exodus and the old Exodus, as you remember, the old Exodus, there's a lot of similarities. There was a beginning and there was an end. Ultimately, God would deliver his people from a tyrant into their home, the promised land. Here God is saying to us cryptically through the manifestation of his glory in his son Jesus Christ that there will be an exodus, there will be a delivery, a liberation from the tyrant, not Pharaoh, but sin itself and death and that through that new exodus there is a beginning sin and death but there is a new home the promised land in Jesus' ministry meaning heaven you see what the connection there as there is a uh, a uh, what's the theological word uh, i can't remember it right now forgive me but there is this capitulation where you see something happening in the old, a typology, and it's taking place in the new, but with a much more deeper and nuanced meaning. Where in the Old Testament, the Exodus went from Egypt into Jerusalem, the second Exodus, the Exodus of Jesus, Jesus goes from Jerusalem to heaven. Do you see that? recapitulation? And my dear brothers and sisters, what's all this theology about? It has practical meaning because what Jesus is doing here by revealing himself in the triune God is that he is preparing the way for us and our loved ones. That the only way through that new exodus is through his passion, namely his death and resurrection and his ascension. There is so much being said here, but we have to see it beyond the words themselves. We have to see what Jesus is being, is communicating here through his transfiguration. And then, as Peter says, it is good that we 're here let's make tense. He wants to keep he wants to keep Jesus in line with the Old Testament and prophets, but he doesn't know what he 's going to say he, he's so afraid of what's taking place, and before he says anything else, God speaks. and God says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. meaning Peter, James, and John listen to him. As he rebuked you, you don't have the mind and the thoughts of God. You want to stop him from going to the cross. No, listen to him, not Elijah, not Moses. Listen to Christ. He needs to go through what he needs to go through for the sake of the world, for the sake of you and me, for the sake of our loved ones, and we will see them because Jesus went through what he said he would. Jesus lived and died to conquer death. Oh, death, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, oh, death, where is your victory? No longer has the plague of death, the curse of death, have any victory over us, no. Because of our triumphal Christ, that he conquered the grave and that is what this passage is all about it is a reminder to you my dear brothers and sisters do not grow, grow weary if you are hurting today if you are longing a loved one i want to tell you that god in christ has promised us eternal life with him and his saints that you will see your parent again, you will see your loved one again, and you will see your child again. Death does not have the final word. Christ does. Revelation tells us, 21... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for their former things have passed away. They have passed away. They have passed away. We will be resurrected one day. We will be transformed one day too as Christ was. I will see my father one day because my father was in Christ. That is God's word. That's his promise. I believe it. Creat- Christianity would not exist if it wasn't for the resurrection. St. Paul tells us if the resurrection never took place, our preaching is in vain. But thanks be to God that it did. For in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. My dear brothers and sisters, the first Valentine was the son of God. He is our first love because he loved us before we loved him. I want to encourage you today. I want to lift up your spirit I don't want the enemy to lie to you, to deceive you. No, or deceive me from the truth. The truth is that God has won. The victory has already taken place. There is no more battle. He has won, He has crushed the serpent's head. He has crushed the serpent's head. Yes, his heel was wounded for our sake. And the covenant was established and ratified through the blood and the body of our Lord. And that's why we love Jesus. That's why we call ourselves Christians. That's why we gather week after week, month after month, year after month, month, year after year in church, because we know the truth. We have an allegiance with God because we know what he's done for us and we have hope that life will continue and has continued. Eternity begins now, not in the future. It begins now. The promise is for us Today, I end with this. May God comfort all of us who long to see here and feel our loved ones. But he, he has promised us, he has gone before us and prepared the way. We just need to now believe and follow. And if we do, we leave that room, that house, and go outside where we will be free and see our loved ones again. May your heart be warmed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the truth of these words, and the transfiguration is a new exodus that we leave death and eternal life. We enter, and we enter with joy. That's the final word. Christ has trampled hell and Satan under his feet. Amen. In Jesus Christ, we pray these things.